round earthers. Uh, today we've got a little house of tonic live, which is uh, some top shelf house and a little lime. I'll bring on the man, uh, Mark Kulax. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing pretty fantastic. How are you, Matt? I'm well. Did I get the last name right? Um, you know, I just blank it out. How did you pronounce it? I said uh, Kulax. That's pretty darn good. Okay. That's good enough. That's good enough. Say it uh, for me. I say I say Kulak, but Kulak. Oh, you just you don't say the Z. Oh boy, I've heard it's silent Z. I've also heard it should be pronounced as Q Watch, uh, but who, who knows? <laughs> Got it from my stepdad, uh, and uh, I keep it. It's just a one of those cool little. As I mentioned before the strange six-letter last names with a Z in it. I'm like, okay, so we got Peter Strzok. We got uh, we got uh, also a Peter Dashak. It's like, well, I don't know, maybe I should change it. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, doing well, good. I, I'm just going to mention, I, I've enjoyed your show a lot recently. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Mark runs a show. Uh, it can be found on YouTube and other places um, called House of Tonic. And the, the, the one flaw is that uh, sometimes if I'm not there on time or if I try to watch it late, it's already pulled down. And and uh, re remind us, uh, what is the uh, where where do we go to find the shows when they're pulled down? Uh, I put backup copies onto Rumble. Uh, the channel there is Houstonic. Uh, also onto BitChute, and that's also Houstonic, and Odyssey as well. Okay. Uh, so I I back up. So and I try. It's well, we know what YouTube is all about. Uh, it potentially allows us to reach a bigger audience. I know your channel was pulled <clears> down <throat> recently, or um, and there's you can say a lot, but there's a little, there's just a little lip, just one little bump that you just can't cross over. I don't know exactly what it is. I'm still trying to feel it out, right? But it is what it is, and that's the world. That's that's and, the and rules you, that we have to work in. And you don't necessarily know why it is you you know your content's been pulled down though. Our channel is totally and completely blanked. Uh, I, I think that it was because of uh, Liam's uh, episode, his uh, news report, where he went a uh, little bit further in depth maybe than he was supposed to on the Project Veritas League. And, mm. uh, and he found out that there was a relation, that there was a working relationship at mm. Pfizer between uh, Jordan Walker and a woman who was working for another company making like uh, solutions for vaccine injuries. Interesting. I've not heard that one before myself. Yeah. Uh, do you have that episode on your? Uh, it, it should, it's on Rumble. Should be about um, I don't know, uh, maybe sixteen days, seventeen days old at this point. Okay. Um, but it, that this is my speculation. That's what I think, and I say that out loud. Um, yeah, uh, partially because I'm going to mention uh, my my solution to this was to give Liam a raise. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, he's done better and better research, I think. And, uh, and, you know, it, at the point at which you, you, you poke that nerve, it feels like, ah, they're telling us something. Uh, I don't know if that's what they meant to tell us, but they're telling us something. So, but well, uh, not Martin, to get too yeah. lost in it, but I think, uh, it's just an interesting thing to, to talk about maybe for a few minutes. How, what do you think they were trying, what, what, what was attempted to be accomplished? And do you think they, they were successful or it was a, a failure. The whole, this whole story, this whole rollout, the whole 
Jordan Walker uh, uh, narrative? I'm I'm still I, I I've I've uh, I decided very early on I want to not make up my mind about this very easily or very quickly, but as per our last conversation, the last time you were on here, we were talking about how you know government is a set of power levers, essentially, and when I and there was this debate going on, um, some with uh, with Robert Barnes and some other people, but like you know who's responsible for all this? Is it the is it Pfizer? Is it the DOD? You know, Sasha Latipova says the DOD. Mm -hmm. um, I I've said the DOD is responsible for a lot of things. Um, obviously, um, the the type of research that would create bioweapons, obviously, you know, <laughs> the, the, there's the you know the DOD work has been going ongoing for a very long time. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and we have you know ferreted out different elements of how the DOD might perform um, you know psychological warfare programs uh, and perform that on its own citizens, perhaps. Um, but with this model of anybody who gets into the right, you know, who compromises the right position, you know, who collects the right amount of information could pull these different levers. And so um, it, it could be that a very sophisticated power group but, you know, a, a group of people that has practiced the compromise of government from one position to another over the years. And they're going to be people who say, well, China. Um, I'm still not a fan of just going China. I'm, I'm still not a fan of that. But that's that's that may be a, a complicated discussion. I may uh, dodge it for now. Um, that's not to say that China is not involved. But um you know, it, it could also be a group of power players like just, let's, I'll, I'll just say Western neocons or Western neoliberals or, or you know, if, if they're not the same people. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the Berzhizhinsky-Kissinger sort of alliance of the world. Um, I like where you're going, though. You're not, it's not uh, everyday people versus just one cabal that is a bunch of jerks and wants to execute, uh, you know, exert power. You know, you're, you're, you have some discernment, you see potentially different uh, allegiances, if you will, or alliances at the very least. Um, and uh, I, I think that's going in a, in, in a good direction. Uh, yeah. I think there's too much well, simple. simple and, and I'm not saying that there isn't one person who gives the order, you know, if there's some sort of, uh, you know, deep mafia, then, you know, is there a godfather, right? Like, I, I like to me, it's it's not important to answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, to me, to me, it's important to keep the mind open for new information that comes along. Um, so, you know, like, like I, uh, I think, I think where I am is okay. There is Pfizer involvement. There is DOD involvement. Um, you know, without speculating too much further, we can stop there. Or I mean, we can stop there plus facts, right? So that that's that's kind of where I am on that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when JJ and Liam and I discussed this last week, we all agreed that he did not appear to be acting. Jordan Walker. Hmm. He did not appear to be acting. So, you know, there, there, it's not really a mark on Project Veritas or James O'Keefe, unless there's something else to the story that we don't know. Um, it is interesting that he is under fire because, uh, you know, ultimately he was doing what it seems like his mission is to do. 
And I, I still haven't decided why I think that is. So anyhow, um, may, maybe it's because I, I, I pay attention to too many things. Maybe I'd have a stronger opinion if I you know, paid. I, I haven't even really paid it. I haven't even, um, I, I know some of the people who fund Project Veritas, but I, I don't even know that whole list. So I'm not going to speculate on the motivations there. So, but that's where I am. What about you? It, it did feel like there was at the very least an element of acting or at least exaggeration. Uh, and, and it is Veritas's role to, uh, to interview, to expose, to, uh, I, I don't like to, I, I'm not a big fan of undisclosed recordings of people. Um, just, I mean, I understand. I mean, there, there's probably times it's appropriate. I'm just not a big fan of it myself. Uh, usually I think that there's ways to, well, maybe you could do note-taking, but the sharing of that, eh. But it did feel as though it was at the very least a little over the top. Uh, it, it, But the reaction, though, uh, with the O'Keefe being laid off, and then there was some other drama that was unveiled. Uh, we saw the channels that got struck. It, at the very least, felt as though something did not go according to a plan. Like, there was intention to be... A, a, a type of response or uh, association of guilt with Pfizer. And it just seemed like so many other things were kicked up as part of it that it was like, you know what? Let's just close the book on this one. <laughs> Let's move on to something else. And the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, some of the research that uh, Walker was, was associated with anyways, with the Boston consulting group, I found to be uh, compelling. Now, uh, the public documents are not really white papers. They're more like blog posts. And uh, I think that that should be clarified. However, it's unlikely that the Boston Consulting Group would hire several PhDs to write a blog post. They're most likely like a, like a, uh, like a marketing, if you will, uh, of probably larger guidelines which have been produced within Boston Consulting and then sold and distributed, probably paid for by the American Metal Association, perhaps some money from the Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, et cetera. So, and uh, it's certainly not as if the Boston Consulting Group was the first to suggest some of the uh, uh, therapies that were in those books. Uh, it was merely was a formality, an important formality nonetheless though. Anyways, it just seemed like it, it's, things went in so many other directions. And I'll tell you what, it's it's not easy to say, well, you know, I think Pfizer got too much of the blame on this one. But uh, there's, there's there's plenty of guilt to go around. And yeah, there is. And, and and you don't have to split it either. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you can say, you know, Pfizer's all guilty of, of X, Y and Z. Um, one of the things that that you know worries me that won't be easy to untangle is. You know, if people say, okay, well, Pfizer's not responsible because they're really working as an arm of the DOD, right? Mm, okay. I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I, I'm not responsible because I performed this hit on behalf of the Godfather. You know, uh, if I make that my excuse, okay, sure, you should go after the Godfather. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But if that's the excuse, you know, I'm still the hitman, right? So... You know, like, you know, you don't have to divide, you don't have to divide the, uh, the blame for some of these things. Um, well, if, the if given money everywhere. There's, 
um, most companies have received some level of support uh, from the Department of Defense or one of the agencies within the Department of Defense. Uh, not to mention the uh, the was was almost a trillion dollars the total funding for warp speed. I don't know. It was it was a lot of money. Um, it was more money than I'll ever see. Uh, and so yeah, they did have a uh, a role with funding a lot of these initiatives. But also, when the warp speed is investigate Operation Warp Speed. There's many elements of that which uh, to this day are not getting discussed. One of those, again, talking about Jordan Walker, uh, was the Boston Consulting Group papers that said that there were two vaccines that were going to be effective, that they envisioned to be effective against and in the future for people with COVID-19. And again, I'm just speaking to the narrative just because I'm speaking a narrative doesn't mean I buy the narrative. So just be clear about that, okay? And they were Moderna's mRNA vaccine. And the other one was the product from Inovio. And they were very clear in those guidelines from May of 2020 that it was going to be at a minimum of two years, maybe as many three years before they were going to be available. And there were going to be about 2 million deaths, estimated maybe more, before the vaccines were available. They didn't speak at all to uh, with any... There's nothing in there to suggest that they knew that there was going to be an accelerator program funded by the United States Department of Defense to take those products and to make sure that they were available on the market by the end of 2020 or early 2021, whatever the official date was. Uh, but as it turned out, they were. Uh, and Inovio didn't make it to market. It was cut somehow. And I, I, don't, I would, don't believe that even if it's not really clear that the products were ever going to change anyways. Here we are three years in. And as far as I know, there still hasn't been any major reformulations of the product from Moderna. So it's hard to say that, well, it's dangerous because warp speed accelerated when they could have changed it anyways. And they still haven't. There's still, I, I believe, hopefully I'm describing this properly, uh, the encoding for the original Wuhan strain spike protein in there. You had two or three years now. You can't make uh, some adjustments to supposedly uh, accommodate mutations and so on. At most, there's been some fluctuation with the levels, rebranding. Uh, some products are now determined to be boosters versus first dose or second dose, et cetera. But Anyway, so there's a lot of nuances, and I think rich conversation that can be had, which Jordan Walker and other people he had worked with bring us towards. And it felt un unfortunate that the conversation was purely limited to Pfizer's doing gain of function. Well, in a sense, almost everyone's doing gain of function in a way, uh, making augmentations to bacteria or viruses to see, uh, you know, how animals and people will respond to different strains, et cetera. One could even make a case that the development of mRNA medicine on, in and of itself is a form of a, of a gain of function, making an un, unnatural synthetic exosome, but that might be going too far down that path. But it does highlight how, uh, and I, I itemize like three things or so to talk about today. And that is how there is a lot of insights that can be had to the current events that we are all find ourselves fighting and struggling and drowning within by getting some more, taking a few steps back, 
and factoring in some of the history that led us to these. Uh, not Babylonian history, not that far back, but three years, five years, some cases, 50 years. And looking at events where it felt as though things were didn't go according to plan. Warp speed is a great uh, example of that because as the Boston Consulting Group papers, such, uh, which uh, Jordan Walker led us to, and Rick Bright to actually on May 15, 2020, in US Congress said that he thought warp speed was gonna fail miserably. Uh, he had, you know, he thought it was a big mistake. They still needed two years, uh, Trump's blah, 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 et cetera. So most people in government felt as though, felt that way. But because it went from a projected two to three years to, well, it's got to be out in a few months. Now you have a moment where some larger plan probably didn't come together and you can get a little bit of a, like, a, like a fracturing, like there's been an earthquake. You can see some daylight coming through the cracks. Factor that in with some history. And I think that there's a lot of rich insights that can be had that can provide some, that can facilitate people's strategy and how to uh, uh, pr plan, prepare, project where we're going from here. That kind of makes me wonder a little bit if the election was related to any kind of a change of plans, but um, you know, that's just, that's a speculative question. Which one? Uh, 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 2020 or 2020. Yeah, uh, that seemed to go pretty much according to a plan. <laughs> the rule that happens between yeah. the the holding of the elections and the inauguration. Mm -hmm. um, so it's right there coupled with it. So you've got this, you know, no vaccine world and then vaccine world being very much paired with a presidential transition. Correct. Um, going back a little bit further, I saw your tweet the other day where you mentioned that uh, warp speed was actually a phrase that had been previously employed. Uh, yes. I say employed because I'm not sure how to how to interpret that exactly, but uh, tell us about that. The phrase, well, warp speed, this must have been like a sci-fi movie that used the phrase. So that's what the original inspiration is. And I don't I don't watch enough sci-fi movies or comic books to know exactly where it was, but it was used several times in 2016 in relation to the Zika virus, the Zika virus outbreak and the development of the vaccines for Zika virus. Zika virus was uh, attributed to, or the Zika virus outbreak was attributed to uh, some birth defects which were observed in South America, mostly South America, maybe a little bit of Central America, but mostly South America in 2015 and widely discussed and reported in 2016. Never before has Zika virus been associated with anything of that nature. And there's a lot of controversy around uh, how weak that association was and captured really well in a book by uh, Dr. Randy or Randall Bach, B-O-C-K who I recently interviewed. Now, uh, while there is much to debate uh, and discuss about the Zika virus outbreak, most of the vaccines that we saw were mRNA and DNA vaccines. Matter of fact, it was Moderna uh, vaccine, mRNA, as well as an Inovio DNA vaccine. Again, it's, it's like a repeat. And there were several other products. Um, what was it, CureVac? I think CureVac might have been one, uh, but there were one or two, two other lesser known products. And the program to make these vaccines, manufacture them fast enough and get the testing going 
was referenced in some newspapers as a warp speed effort. Uh, now, I've also heard that uh, Obama himself, who was really very much under influence by Biden. So I just speak generally for the administration, not like Obama is some super villain. Uh, the Obama administration had also used the phrase warp speed, but I can't find that in writing. So I'm a little bit careful with that. Uh, but I do suspect that it was a phrase that was being tossed around and the papers were reporting on it. And it's been through perhaps some censorship that has made it more difficult to find references to that. But local Boston Globe newspapers, which tend to follow, uh, you know, repeat uh, the mainstream official straight from DC executive branch stuff, uh, did use that phrase in 2016. So it was a different virus, but the same vaccines and the same general concept. And as it turned out, no one really needed any of that stuff, which is really frightening that there was a warp speed effort to get genetic vaccines available for women of childbearing age, not even pregnant, childbearing age, when all of the evidence to suggest that it might have provided some benefit or even was needed has vanished. Mm -hmm. Wow. That right there should be a story that, uh, again, I think Veritas, uh, Project Veritas, and I believe there's a lot of good people on Project Veritas as well. Um, I, I wish that they would use the resources they had to pick up on more stories. Uh, that's all. I'm just hopeful, hope for the best there. As opposed yeah, to I, I, I don't know enough about how that team operates or, uh, you know, the only person I can name there is James O'Keefe and I've never met him. Um, so uh, that's just, I just hope for the best. Right. I don't know anyone else there either myself, um, but I know most people have a conscience. So uh, let's just uh, hope <laughs> that someday they can use the funds and resources they have available. Yeah. So that was used in 2016. And it's the it was the vaccines technologies themselves. And it does make you wonder, why is there such a fanatical push to get to a new era of vaccine development and manufacturing? Uh, that, and that seems to trace back, I would say, 10 years, possibly 12 years. Um, and uh, one of the best ways to get insights into that, and I've discussed this on a, one of my later live, live streams in the last couple of weeks or so, is, and I'm sure that you and most of the audience is aware or familiar with the backstory of a Dr. Judy Mikovits, uh, who worked in the National Cancer Institute uh, under a Dr. Francis Ruschetti, and who uh, was disparaged for or accused of falsifying some research, falsifying some data around 2009, 2010 and has recently over the last few years written a book and has come out publicly to say that uh, we should put a halt to a lot of the vaccine programs. Um, now, the research that Judy Mikovits had done unveiled that there, were, there was contamination of sorts in many vaccines which are being manufactured in the United States, at least, maybe worldwide. And this was uh, characterized as a retrovirus which was connected all the way back to mice, which were used in either the research and or development of many vaccines. And it was referred to as XMRV, xenotropic uh, maureen retroviruses. I believe I, I have that uh, characterized properly. And these XMRVs were present in so many different vaccines and were responsible for a wide range of health problems, which were being correlated with vaccines 
of many types across wide age groups. Now, when that research first came out, it was actually very well received. New York Times, even Anthony Fauci was very complimentary of it. And uh, the only solution, really, when you think about it was, well, how the heck are you going to filter all this stuff out? Or maybe, maybe someday you go to a new type of vaccine technology, get away from the eggs, get away from the mice, you print it somehow. Now, the uh, what, what had happened was as she had written some of her first papers along with her mentor, Ruschetti, who, by the way, was uh, worked for eight or 10 years side by side with uh, Robert Gallo, uh, the, the person who supposedly discovered and isolated HIV. But that's a whole nother story. Um, there were a couple of scientists that brought forward some information that suggested that maybe some of her data wasn't accurate. I'm not sure that they said that it was intentional. Uh, but maybe she just didn't observe it. And there was a lot of debate and the debate escalated and was reviewed by uh, and pulled many people within the Cancer Institute, Health and Human Services. And ultimately, uh, the research papers that Mikevitz had put forward were uh, considered to be discredited and were taken down. And then a lot of really fantastic things happened. There was a massive FBI raid on something called the Whittemore-Peterson Institute in Nevada, which had funded a lot of her work on XMRBs. And uh, really, it, and, and the reason why she had received the research was because she was trying to determine what was behind chronic fatigue syndrome or CFS, which some connect with vaccines, some people connect with Lyme disease. Uh, it's, not, it's not like there's a chronic fatigue syndrome virus or bacteria, uh, but it is a crippling, awful uh, disability that's happening more and more and potentially many different things are causing it. So she had come up with a, uh, a hypothesized correlation of chronic fatigue syndrome and these retroviruses. Okay, well, here we are. Now we're in 2010 or 11. I could have the date wrong by a year or so. So I'm best at the top of my head here. The work is then uh, struck. It's said to be invalid. And that was a, a big blow to her career. Her career kind of stalled at that point. She worked at a couple of other places, but as you can imagine, uh, that was a, uh, and then of course, uh, the, lots of her digital assets were collected, etc. And it's also noteworthy that the, uh, the two scientists who were part of the uh, writing the research papers or doing the research that suggested Judy Mikevitz's work might have been invalid were a Dr. Mark Weinberg of the National Microbiology Laboratory in Canada, uh, and the other one was a Dr. Quante Jang or KT Jang, J-E-A-N-G, uh, who was at the, was a very high ranking researcher at the National Cancer Institute. And as it turns out, within three years, uh, KT Jang, uh, father of three, age 53, fell off the top of a parking garage, actually in Bethesda at the National Cancer Institute and died. And Mark Weinberg, who was only in his uh, mid to late 60s and just recently retired, uh, died. Uh, and two feet of water off a beach in Florida. So they both died very, in very, very suspicious ways. Weinberg, by the way, uh, was a peer of Francis Plummer, uh, the uh, really the Anthony Fauci, HIV hero of Canada, who died in 2020. Uh, uh, Guang Chiao, the uh, accused Chinese spy who supposedly was smuggling Ebola to China and was arrested in 2019, uh, as well as uh, Heinz Feldman, who is now the director of the Rocky Mountain Laboratory and working under directly under Anthony Fauci, who's uh, 
uh, associate Emmy DeWitt is the person who photographed coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. So Wayne Berg was a pretty big uh, machine up in Canada. Anyways, why do we bring up the Mikevitz story here? How did we get to there? Well, the solution to such contamination would have been new vaccine technology, getting away from the old ways, getting away from the animals, getting away from the eggs. And the only thing that would really meet that would be DNA or mRNA vaccines, which were manufactured in completely new, innovative methods to remove any type of potential uh, other retrovirus contamination. So, and that goes back to 2009, 2010, 2011. And then a few years later with the Ebola outbreak, we're looking at new types of vaccine uh, technology uh, being tested for that. Uh, the Ebola virus was a recombinant, uh, uh, recombinant DNA uh, virus, or no, recombinant, it was, a, uh, it was a manufactured vaccine that was assembled with respiratory syncytial virus, I think, and a couple of other augmentations. It was a very, very strange uh, a vaccine that is now being offered by Merck. Then you have the Zika virus outbreak where they immediately go to mRNA and DNA vaccines. And then we have the COVID-19 pandemic. And what are we looking at? DNA and mRNA vaccines again. So you could see there is a, there's a fire under people's ass to get to the new era of vaccines. I suspect that there's more to it than just profits, saving a few dollars in the manufacturing. I have some ideas of what that may be, but that crosses more into speculation as opposed to showing the evidence, which says, holy moly, there's a lot of people who are seriously driven to get to the new vaccine technology. There might be a good reason behind it. Maybe the old stuff is way bad and no one wants to say it. That's, I don't know, but that's I'm interesting. Can I, that. can I cut in here and mention this? Um, Please. I've just talked for 10, 15 minutes and I can. <laughs> um, so I'm listening to um, uh, lately last few days as, uh, as I work, which I uh, didn't work much this weekend, fortunately, but uh, I, I've been listening to Peter uh, Zihan, um, his book that came out last year. Uh, I went ahead and got it on audible. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to his book and he's talking about how we're going to see like, you know, demographic collapses in nations around the world. Right. And when you think about, you know, China's demographics, you know, you, you have this one child policy for so many years and you wind up with this, you know, very top heavy demographic curve. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, because of this, you know, the U.S. is in a better position than most of the you know, major nations around the world in terms of what could happen after a decoupling of the global economic system, right? If there's less trade going on, if the U.S. is no longer policing the oceans, you know, how, how do things play out? And, uh, and you know, China does have this, this demographic problem. And, but he, he says, well, look, you know, all these Asian nations have this, this demographic problem. Um, all but do? Uh, well, uh, essentially, essentially, but okay. Sorry, um, I'm cutting um, in um, like the, the baby boomer generation kind of happened globally. Hmm. You know, that wasn't just a U.S. phenomenon. So <clears throat> but we have um, yeah, th there's not enough. Well, and, and everybody got wealthier. And when people get wealthier, suddenly people start having fewer babies. Hmm. At least broadly speaking, um, there may That's be a true. cultural element also. But regardless, he, he throws this in, in the middle of his book, he throws in, um, unless cloning, and it made me just sort of stop and, you know, my ears perked up, wait, what? So 
there's this demographic problem that exists for all of Asia where it's going to be very hard if, if so many people are working health care for the old people, you know, who's working for the economy. That's true. And, and that's an extremely challenging, it, it, it's, it's a more challenging issue than most people just sort of sit back and think about on a day-to-day basis. You know, how, like, you know, we think, oh, the onward march of technology, you know, new people come in, replace older people in the working environment. And that's just nope. sort of how it happens. But, you know, that, that's, that comes with assumptions. That comes with assumptions of, you know, similar inputs and outputs, right? And it comes with assumptions of how the money has to be spent and the culture of how the money is going to be spent and whether or not there are other disruptions, whether that's war or, you know, the dollar era changing in some you know great way which is clearly going on right now um so you know it's clear that china has been pursuing cloning technology right in in the west we've been a little bit more reticent to experiment on humans which i I think is (laughs) is a good thing um well even if they clone you still someone still needs to raise these children i mean there's the whole issue of is cloning ethical I mean, I would, let's skip over that one, okay? But you still need to raise children, and raising children yeah, takes energy agree. and time. And the more you have a top-heavy, uh, in terms of uh, more older a generation than younger, it becomes it, like it's like a deflationary spiral. It becomes even harder for the younger generation. I, I to totally have kids. agree. And and this is this is a we could say this is the Maria Montessori point. Right. Mm-hmm. Maria Montessori, when she moved to Rome, when she was given that opportunity because she had been able to train uh, children, you know, like, like uh, young people under 20 in, in, who were in a mental institution, she was able to train them to run a laboratory. So eventually she got more and more opportunities. And one of those was, um, you know, she was brought to Rome and, and allowed to, you know, build programs for young people. But, you know, her observation was, you know, I look out my window and I see these street urchins. Either we take these kids and educate them or we have problems, right? We, you know, these will be the criminals of the next generation. That's just how it works. Mm -hmm. You don't raise these kids and that's where that's, you know, maybe not all of them. They make decisions, they make choices, they have different experiences, but you know, like like that, that has to be dealt with. So yeah, absolutely. If if you were to create a whole bunch of clones and, and not raise them well, uh, even assuming perfection of the technology, which is a, a great leap <laughs> of assumption. But um, yeah, so but it, it just it just sort of struck me as interesting. I like uh, a lot of Zihan's analysis. I don't like this book as much as some of his others, but there's so much in it that's that's you know makes you think in a good way about what's going on right now and how it it may be that we are making artificial moves related to how this is all going to play out is in that there was going to be decoupling. So maybe, maybe all of this is related to how it is we see that playing out. That's absolutely possible. Um, you know, I, I, if you look at some of my older stuff, uh, you know, I would be embarrassed to say that I would be more, more, more readily go to the, Oh, there's good people and bad people and white hats and black hats and all that other nonsense. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm much more capable of, of seeing the nuances right now. You know, there has to be more to it than just some evil people that want to depopulate the earth uh, that behind 
uh, these things. I'm not saying that it's a good, it's all good or all bad, but there has to be a lot more nuances to it. And I, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by just going straight to good people, bad people, you know, right and wrong. Or go straight um, to depopulation as, as like, yeah. as like the focus of an agenda. I was actually thinking that as I was listening to Zihan, I was thinking, you know, if there is planned, let's call it planned depopulation, that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that the people who created the plan, that their ultimate goal was depopulation. Maybe what they saw was the population bomb. That's what some people refer to this, you know, horrific demographic curve that mm -hmm. we've got going on. Maybe they saw the population bomb and they said, okay, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And, and within Maybe. this group of people, and, and, you know, I do think that we do have some psychopaths at the top of the, the power chains, right? Yeah. Because psychopaths get promoted in these types of power chains. That's true. So it, it may not be that the psychopaths, sometimes I call them the Kulingit, it may not be that they planned depopulation. It may be that they saw the population bomb and they said, how do we plan for the world? And so their ultimate goal is still power and money as it always would have been. And, you know, I, I, I further don't know if I would think, <clears throat> well, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll put a pin in that. Um, you had emailed me um, some topics. Sure, that you, sure. That you might, just, I, I don't, I don't want to think on that, time though. to cover them all, but yep. uh, go ahead. Uh, uh, is that there is, uh, there was undoubtedly a time when uh, uh, several leading academics or thought, pro, you know, whatever you want to call them, I don't even like these words, academics, the, the intelligente, uh, such as Dr. Herman Muller of University of Chicago, uh, openly discussed the need for population controls and reducing the global population. That absolutely did happen. I think they rent it very seriously. That, how uh, involved they were in implementing the policy, I don't know. We know that Henry Kissinger and other U.S. officials had repeated that again. How successful were they in actually that being part of policy? It most likely, I mean, you see in China, the one-child policy, which seems to be re reflect concerns of that at, at one point. Uh, but how much of this, uh, this mindset of reducing global population is driving what's happening today? It, it could be the main thing. But just a lot of evidence that's, that also suggests otherwise as well. Um, so I'm still open to it. Uh, I just don't believe, and I think you're probably in the same camp, that it's what's driving everything right now. And I'm sure there's a few people who just can't wait for there to be uh, less cars on the road. <laughs> uh, but uh, again, I don't think that's what's driving today's thing. But yes, so three things today. Uh, I sent you some uh, just some, some ideas, and I think I'm going to move to the first two. A little quickly but they all build on this concept of getting more actionable or I should say facilitating more strategic insights or responses to the things that we see happening right now by by factoring in some of this uh less documented history or finding history which is, has been actively rewritten a perfect example of this this is the first thing to talk about is the impact, global impact of the 1918 Spanish flu. Not many people alive, by the way, today that can actually were around then, much less actually saw it with their own eyes. But the official narrative today 
what Anthony Fauci or uh, Michael Hosterholm will say if they were presenting to Congress, what they do say, or when they're talking to the media is 50 million, maybe 100 million people died worldwide of this virus that sprung up in early uh, 1918, spread around the world, uh, at life expectancy went down, and that could happen again. They have even have made claims that they found the origin of this zoonotic virus uh, in Alaska uh, by unearthing some people who actually, a small vill uh, village of people who were claimed to have died around then, 1917 or 1918, and reconstructing the 1918 Spanish flu virus. <coughs> now, the big problem with this narrative is there really isn't a lot of evidence that 50 to 100 million people died. If you just look at global population charts, you will not see 50 to 100 million people going missing in 1918, 19. It just, now maybe the birth rate quadrupled in one year and overcame that. I don't think that's likely. Now in US newspapers in October, November of 1918, uh, we're reporting that there was a very noteworthy and terrifying acceleration of uh, Americans dying of influenza. And it had been observed uh, uh, people dying of influenza at a young age, also in France and in England. Most of the deaths were associated with uh, military personnel, uh, usually ages 18 all the way to 40, who were signing up for World War I at that time. The total number of deaths attributed to uh, influenza in 1918, as of, as of uh, early 1919, was about 500,000, which was by far and away a record. However, there were very few, if any, influenza deaths noted in the United States uh, in early 1919. I even found articles that have newspaper articles from the time that said they were surprised that uh, aside from the 1918 year, 1919 really wasn't a bad flu season at all. Now, there were some reports made of Navy personnel who had traveled to India, who noted that there were many people in the ports there who were associated with the, uh, the war at the time, uh, just traveling through or whether it was uh, cargo shipments or whatever the case, who were also sick. And a projection was made in newspapers and by government officials that, well, they factored in approximately how many people they saw at the port. And they assumed that many people, percentage of the population of all of India, then also died mm. in 1918. So based upon those increased expectations or increased numbers, it, some the papers reported that worldwide, as many as 10 million people may have died in 1918, 1919 from influenza. And that, that's from extrapolating from one port in Asia Yes. trying to figure out how many people died in Asia. Yeah, yes, yes. And then they further pumped this number up to 50 to 100 million, 50 million on. 20 million. And if you read through Encyclopedia Britannica articles, for example, you can see the number continuing to increase. Now, in fact, it just so happens that I have my, my late grandfather's uh, uh, book here that he used. This is a 1922 book, but basically it's a history book, encyclopedia, uh, dictionary, everything, right? This is what the kids would, would, would have gotten. And the 1918 flu was, not a, was such a non-story in here that it doesn't even really talk about it. 
it just said that there was a, a, a few more troops died than normal from influenza. So this story just continues to accelerate in, in magnitude mm. and uh, is now being used, which you know, we get history wrong. You know, there's lots of stuff that history, that history gets wrong, uh, but it's important to get this one right because it is used uh, to motivate policy decisions today. How much right. power should the government have? How much should we invest in surveillance? How deadly can pandemics be? And it always goes back to this 1918 event. And there were several hundred thousand Americans that died. It was a very brutal way to die. How much of it was virus? How much of it was bacterial? Well, again, looking through the history books, you will find that many, uh, much of the U.S. shipping industry, as, uh, both uh, especially in the uh, uh, ocean-wise, was struggling with something called the shipping flu, where uh, sometimes as many as uh, 25 to 30 percent of all animals that went on the boats would die by the time they got off the boats. Uh, and this was because of uh, uh, vent the ventilation conditions at the time, uh, new naval technology, uh, just a, a variety of things. Of course, the stress of being transported and being in close quarters. So it was known that many animals, and well, people are animals too, were dying because of lung stress, because of proximity to each other, bad ventilation, uh, bacteria. And of course, there was the other stress of malnutrition and potentially some vaccine research, which some of the U.S. troops were being subjected to. Also, World War I was not a... There were no Apache helicopters, there were no Humvees. Uh, so the United States sent approximately 1 million mounts, mules and horses across the oceans uh, in 1918. And there's a very strong correlation of troop movement. And again, it was mostly troops who were impacted uh, and, uh, being, and their proximity to animals, which were also uh, getting sick. So, so I'm not looking to diminish the, the severity and the awfulness of this, but it has... The, instead of appreciating it for what it was and, and providing the respect, which I think is due to the servicemen, it has been butchered and bastardized and, and misinterpreted for a completely different cause. This is people in people and animals in close quarters with one another mm -hmm. during wartime and perhaps in dirtier conditions that might have even involved um, you know, exposures to chemicals that that weren't uh you know usual and normal a, a confluence of things yes. you know there are so many variables there yes unique is that the no virus crowd um you know looks around and says there's mm -hmm. less good evidence than you think for all of this you know virus stuff and i think that when it comes to you know uh, how many people are killed uh by viruses from pathogenic effects I think that they have a very good point, and I think that this is one of them. Um, I disagree with the conclusion that there are no viruses, but um, it, but it's clear that there I are. Do too, by the way, I, I mean, do too. By the way, I mean, there's asterisk to it, but I I do too. By the way, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I saw your uh, interview with uh, Mark Bailey the other day. Um, I, I was glad to see you have him on. Uh, you were able to have a good conversation with him. I think he's a good guy. Um, and I, I kept trying to tease out, you know, there are particles there, right? There are, there's, there's things. And it's, oh boy, it's a, 
I've been trying to find a, a fun way to characterize the whole debate, not necessarily with Mark Bailey. I think we got along quite well. But the debate is, uh, I don't know, uh, all bananas are purple. And if you don't believe they're all bananas aren't purple, well, then I guess bananas don't exist. It's sort of you know, <laughs> it's something like that where uh, uh, look, I'll bet you most no virus people, if you say, tell you what, we're going to find a sick monkey. We are then going to tap into its kidney. We're going to drain all the cells out of it and leave everything else in there. If we eject that into you, do you think everything's going to be okay? <laughs> and most of them will probably go, no, I don't think so. I'm like, okay, so you believe there's something there. <laughs> so now, you can get, again, you can get into the nuances of it. Uh, but it's, uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to make a difference in that argument, in that whole discussion. Uh, uh, I'm glad that you see that there is uh, room for this, that there is room there. And I really appreciate it, Mark. I find it to be very professional. And uh, we probably don't agree on everything. We had some differences on uh, you know, contagiousness and maybe the, if there could be a role in exchange of virus-like particles between people. But whatever the case, I'm glad you saw that. And uh, hopefully I'll speak to him again. But that's yeah, the 1918 flu. And it's yeah. something like the Spanish flu were, <laughs> sort of, you know, if they took that event um, and pumped it up, you know, something that may have killed 2 million people or 5 million people and turned it into 20 to 100 million or whatever the various estimates are. Um, it, it's it's a lot easier to create uh, some, you know, a panic out of something than a panic out of nothing. And it is noteworthy that um, that whatever was making people sick, it was observed in so many countries. Do you know why it was called the Spanish flu? It was uh, observed in Spain initially. Well, so it, and and even if it wasn't observed in Spain, um, it was really the British newspapers that determined that it would be called the Spanish flu. And here's why: all over the, all over the world, countries were blaming it on their rivals. The Germans were calling it the Russian flu, hmm. for instance. Um, the Spanish, I think they may have been calling it the I, I, I don't know. Uh, somebody was calling it the Italian flu. I've seen I've seen like you know, an explanation of like, you know, finger pointing was going on all over the place. Of course, it began in like Kansas, right? But, you know, one one way or another, everybody's pointing a finger, but the British newspapers were the most powerful. And that's why it's the Spanish flu, because the British newspapers were the most powerful. Well, that's a good data point. Uh, and night and uh, Kansas, it was Fort Riley. And Fort Riley is where they did uh, was noted for two things. That, that's where they trained surgeons. And that is where they uh, but they also train people for horse riding. Many of the horses came out of Kansas, uh, horses and mules, and were shipped across country, went through Philadelphia and New York City. Oh, my goodness, Philadelphia had a breakout of something. Mm. Absolutely no surprise whatsoever. And, and it was real. It's tragic. Um, and it's it's just, I don't think that the victims uh, of it are, get the recognition that they deserve. And it's it's sad. But it impacts policy. It's not just a trivial pursuit thing. It's still being used today to determine should the government have certain uh, rights to lock people up, to demand new medicine be taken. And I'm a reasonable person. If it really was, if it really absolutely was scientifically true that at any moment, a bat and a pig, something can happen and everyone's going to die unless we take our chance with the medicine. If that actually absolutely was true i'm a very reasonable person to go okay you know well life sucks and you do what you need to do 
But I don't think that's actually true. And that's so so now we have a little bit of a dilemma. But the, the, the 1918 narrative is used as this proof point of especially zoonosis in uh, overall. Yeah, and, and right there you have this like conflation of variables too. Because if humans are getting sick and animals are getting sick, you could say, well, one of them gave the illness to the other. You could also say there's a common, you know, there's a common source of that illness, unclean conditions, which may, which, you know, that I, I'm a believer that we shouldn't discuss, you know, like germ theory versus terrain theory. We should discuss the confluence of the two factors, mm -hmm. um, the one way or another, one way or another. Um, there, there's, you know, there's nothing in that story that implies animals to humans. Just a correlation. Yes. And there, there are other mechanisms by which, um, by which you could have illness sort of, you know, translate, transfer. Um, All right. So uh, how are we doing for, uh, how are we doing for time here? Um, well, uh, we've been going for uh, a little over 50 minutes. Uh, I was going to look back at uh, your email. You, so you were talking in your email also about Ukraine. So where were you going with that? Uh, well, the, the biological research facilities in Ukraine are, uh, they, they, they pop up and then they disappear from the discussion on Twitter, on try, people trying to get insights as to what's really going on there. Uh, I'm sure you've heard most of the stories. Some people say that Putin went into Ukraine because there were biological research facilities there. Of course, some people say absolutely not. Nothing uh, along those lines happened. Uh, there was there's a, a good Twitter account. Uh, the user's name is clandestine, who did some really good threads recently talking about these uh, these research facilities in Ukraine, the connections of them to uh, a 2005 treaty that the United States signed with Ukraine, uh, the Nun Luger program, and as well as some of the investments of the, the, the Biden family. And uh, just. I'm sure there's a lot more there that I that I've missed. But one thing that is it wasn't uh, I didn't see mentioned and perhaps I missed it. Uh, I can't catch all of it was there is I, I've never seen evidence that there were biological research facilities uh, of concern of, or associated with biological weapons anyways in Ukraine before 2004, 2005. Uh uh, post 9-11, uh, November 2001, most new U.S. newspapers were printing out these global maps of all the countries and which weapons of mass destruction each country had, chemical, biological, nuclear. And every single one would show that Ukraine had no biological. I mean, every single one, every single source, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Associated Press, government sources, there was nothing anywhere that documents any uh, repositories, any stockpiles, any uh, scary laboratories doing biological weapon research in Ukraine before 2000, well, really 2005, but, at the, but there's a little bit of wiggle room on 2004. So if that's true, now, that, now maybe they missed it, possible, right? Just because Papers say something. All you know is that that means that the paper said something or didn't say something. But it feels as though it really they really weren't there. So how did they get there and what were they and why do we bring this up? 
talking, uh, how does this help us understand the present maybe a little bit more? Well, in where we do know the United States stated that there were biological weapons research and manufacturing facilities is Iraq after September 11 or October of 2001. And that's heavily documented and discussed. But the United States never found them in Iraq. Uh, and I found this, it, it just blew me away. This uh, a series of articles between 2003 and 2005 2005 article saying that the United States was effectively saying they have been unable to find uh, these research facilities that they said were present in Iraq that were used by Saddam Hussein to make anthrax and smallpox. Okay, so they didn't find them. But noteworthy is that there were professional thieves that were stealing laboratories in Iraq starting after April of 2003. Oh, all right. A racket that I never heard about. And this is reported by the Associated Press and was backed up by, uh, uh, I, I don't know which government officials, the United States or Iraq also chimed in on this, that these professional thieves used cranes to steal the biological research facilities in Iraq that were never found. Well, I mean, I mean, I've never been part of a looting, you know, but usually you don't need a crane to steal a television or, you know, some windows or Find China. You need you use a crane when you're moving something pretty darn big, uh, like a shipping container, or well, <laughs> a mobile research facility uh, would also fall into that category. Now, where uh, throw a little bit more uh, kindling into this fire here, the research facilities were stolen by professionals in Iraq between 2003 and 2005, and we know that in 2005. Uh, the Ukrainian army withdrew from Iraq. Uh, it was only a force of about 150 to 200 people, but we know that they pulled out of Iraq. And then uh, immediately afterwards, the United States in 2005, Department of Defense starts at Rumsfeld, starts saying, you know, we're really worried about biological research facilities in Ukraine. <laughs> and, they send, and they send in none, junior Senator Obama, and by the end of the summer of 2005, the U.S. has a signed treaty with Ukraine protecting all of these biological weapon facilities, which we've never seen evidence of there beforehand. Another fun fact is that there's only one piece of machinery ever made which could fly a, a, a large mobile laboratory from one nation to another, and that would be the Ukrainian AN-225, which was one of the first things that Putin bombed in, in Ukraine uh, during the military operations, which started, uh, I think it was last year now. I can't even keep track anymore. So is it possible that some of these concerns that the United States has expressed about biological weapon research and development or manufacturing in Ukraine, might those actually be the removed and or, or moved laboratories going all the way back to Saddam Hussein and which were never found in 2003, 2004, 2005. It's completely possible uh, uh, to, to speculate that when you look at the equipment that's involved, the size of the equipment, uh, when, you know, when, the, uh, when the, the government says they were worried about weapon manufacturing in Ukraine versus when they started saying they were, the timeline of the treaty, and, and, and many, many other data points. 
the U.S. also made accusations that Ukraine was selling Iraq uh, uh, radar equipment against uh, sanctions in 2002 and 2003. So Ukraine was probably even providing uh, radar installation equipments for Iraq or whoever it was uh, to, uh, to, to track uh, whether or not things could be moved internationally safely. Uh, yeah, that's, so this is interesting. I, I'm going to toss this in here. Um, so this would mean that to the extent that there were there was there were bio warfare operations or perhaps something going on in Ukraine over the past some number of years, mm-hmm. they were not even of Ukrainian origin. Possibly. Meaning that that when these labs were built in Ukraine, you had people who had to be trained up from the ground floor. Oddly, last month I had dinner with a guy who says that he, one, that he helped fund one of the mRNA vaccines secretly using Bitcoin. And this is, this is interesting because this person goes back to, uh. um, this, this person has been involved in the Satoshi Roundtable. And uh, I mean, he's, and, and the uh, establishment of the first U.S. Bitcoin bank. Uh, which is called mm. Custody Bank. He's the uh, chief technical officer. Mm. Uh, his name's Brian Bishop, by the way. And, and he mentioned to me that he was personally funding a Ukrainian biolab. <laughs> and and he, he, he has this personal interest in like DIY, um, like transhumanist technology. Mm. Okay. And, and he's very, very smart. I think he is overconfident. Um, on the biology side, but he is clearly extremely bright. Uh, but he he was apparently funding uh, one of these labs doing, I, I think it was like transfection research. And he had even like theorized a mechanism for transfection using electricity. Uh, I think he abandoned it from what I read in an article, um, uh, you know, that came out a couple of, you know, maybe three, four years ago. Um, Sounds like an OBO-ish type product. Okay. So, but he, he was pushed out of uh, the circle of people doing human genome project stuff because he was interested in building a company for designer babies. Hmm. So that was the direction that he seemed to be interested in going. And, you know, the moment you have designer babies, it, it might go back to that demographic problem. Um. You know, I, I don't know. And, and I, I should give him a phone call. I should I should see, you know, what all he'll tell me. Um, because, I mean, it was just it was sort of fascinating to just sort of randomly wind up, you know, with this guy coming to the dinner that I held in Austin. Um, but, yeah. It, so if Americans are personally funding biolabs in Ukraine, that actually speaks to these labs not being extremely well developed on on like you know, footing that would be well-established, right? That would, that would kind of make sense in this, in the uh, storyline of these laboratories were originally somewhere else. They were transported to the Ukraine. You have, you know, in some cases, people who need to fund the labs doing outside work sent from random people around the world. Yeah. Some of them, some labs, uh, there are, I found several videos from the, uh, I forget if it was from the U.S. Embassy in Kiev or the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which reviews several small laboratories in Ukraine. And the, this isn't exactly Resident Evil type stuff, okay? These are small buildings. 
uh, you know, maybe, a, you know, I don't even know the formal name of all the equipment. But, you know, you see a few beakers over here and a little decontamination machine over there and some some printers and some computers. And like it, it looks like a like a like a like a larger dental office, like a, for an oral surgeon or something like that. And uh, I can't imagine the benefits of having, you know, a dozen or so facilities like that. Uh, and on the other side of the world or uh, far away from the United States, where you would have to send people, you're detached, you have security concerns. I don't really see, you know, the benefit of it other than maybe some regional biosurveillance for agriculture. I mean, I could, there could be uses for it, legitimate uses, but they're all grouped under now high level security clearances, biological weapons, weapons of mass destruction. And those videos don't necessarily represent laboratories, which were, uh, may have even existed going back to 2005. Uh, it appeared there's room in the, there's room in the research. There is plenty of room to speculate. Uh, and this was probably not the long-term plan. Things some, sometimes things just evolve and they work out that way. Uh, where laboratories or manufacturing, at the very least, had migrated, had been moved from Iraq to Ukraine uh, because of uh, a change in plans, and then from there things just further evolved. The other these videos of these other small regional laboratories seem to have come in after the fact, uh, and. Um, certainly there's stuff there that could probably kill you if you if you snort it in but it's they're really not it's not like resident evil type stuff and how the u.s is using these uh, facilities there it's still not really clear to me it uh there's a lot of gain of function research that can be done in the united states as long as it's uh it's controlled it's done in bsl4 it's used for uh you know to, to find how to make more effective therapies and well, if, you know, making so clones on. can be done in in much lower than BSL four. There was that's that true. Boston project where they were you know taping together, uh, where they were uh, taking hybrids of early and late SARS CoV two strains. Yeah, that's true. But because as soon as you say weapons of mass destruction, now you have high level security clearances, and there's a whole lot of other things that can be brought in behind the scenes said to be part of the operation. So, you know, let's expand, let's take a few steps back and expand out. Is some of the program of these research facilities in Iraq part of a way to mask other operations? Is it related to cryptocurrency and maybe future uh, uh, banking uh, implementations, uh, leveraging uh, uh, land resources, energy, if you will, within Ukraine? I don't know, uh, but I think on the surface, it's, oh, they just want to make deadly germs and kill Russians. <sighs> Again, that oversimple narrative, it, I, don't, I don't think anyone is benefiting from it. Uh, and I don't think that Putin is going in because Ukraine has a secret weapon to kill all Russians. It, it, I suspect, let me know what you think, but I think there's a little bit more to it uh, than that. Yeah, I, I think there is too. I, and I think that uh, we, we get there more easily or, or maybe we make the playing field look more clean when we step out and look at the economic big picture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, clearly the world is, is going to change a lot and clearly Russia is important because Russia has resources. Yes. Um, Russia um, did go through the pains of industrialization a long time ago. And they've got a lot of smart people there. Um, so, you know, it, it is what it is, but it, you know, it, 
I, I agree with you that the narrative, I, I think we're being fed a lot of cardboard narratives. Mm -hmm. And my cardboard PhDs. Is that your <laughs> phrase? Someone else said that. That's a good phrase. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it, I think this is cognitive warfare. I think this is, it's meant to take a lot of the things we see are meant to take up our attention, meant to take up our time, meant to make us debate with one another and be split over these debates mm. and become emotionally involved in them. Mm. Whereas in the meantime, the plan moves forward, whatever that plan is. And I agree with you that it is not as, you know, uh, movie villainous of a plan as almost all of the distracting debates sound like. Uh, Even with yes. like, you know, Sino-US relations, like it, it always seems to me like everybody has Sino-US relations wrong. You know, if, if you go back in time, um, you know, I've mentioned this several times because I want people to hear it and think it through, which is that Mao was funded by the U.S. State Department. Right. I could see that when when Mao and, and this isn't this is on Wikipedia. You know, this isn't <laughs> even like deep research type stuff. Right. Um, you know, when Mao and Chiang Kai-shek were kind of in parody, who's going to wind up controlling the country? Um, the U.S. did it and then acted like it was an accident. Literally, it was like, oops, we thought we were going to give Shang Kai-shek the money, too, but now he's too offended to take it. I mean, that, so we wind up with Mao in China and Shang Kai-shek in Taiwan. You know, looking at that, Mao also takes Western cigarette money. So you know, Mao is clearly more involved in the West in many ways than, um, you know, history would lead us to believe. So what if... What if it was the West that inserted the one-child policy into China, possibly mm. intentionally as a population bomb that would go mm. off right about the time the dollar might be revolving into another reserve currency? Because these reserve currency time, time periods last about 80 years apiece, going all the way back to Portugal, Spain, uh, the Gilder in the Netherlands, the Frank in France, the Sterling, now the U.S. dollar. These are about 80-year spans in history. And then you have the end of the cycle coming up now. Boom, population bomb. Hmm. This seems to me to be actually a more natural plan. And it may, it may be one where, where uh, you know, a group of people says, well, let's set this in motion. We'll do other things as, you know, we'll figure out other plans as we go. But let's go ahead and set this one in motion now. Wow. But Russia is a, a different story than China. One of the things that um, that I like to point out to people is uh, M Moscow is twice as far from Beijing than it is from London. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's about right. There's this giant land that people go, oh, that's Russia, right? But, you know, you're power and population concentrations in the southwest part I, I don't know if it's southwest i don't know you know put a pin on it but it, it moscow's near europe yes true and and it, it you know playing playing russia is a different game than playing china and it may be that um that the western world i know that jp morgan helped steer the bolshevik revolution it's hard to know what happened from there afterward, just like it's hard to know what happened with Western control after power succession from Mao, right? Each of those may have just gone off on its own evolution thereafter. 
And so, you know, we're looking at, at China. We've got the population bomb there. Um, and then we, but we have to handle Russia in a different way. And I think that we knew, and in fact, um, you know, West, some Western sources, think tanks have articles. And, and I wish I'd saved all of these before I started taking notes as, as actively as I do now. But I know that uh, Western think tanks and maybe even newspapers have been talking about Russia moving West and, you know, gobbling up some other countries, you know, Ukraine, uh, maybe Moldova, Lithuania, um, you know, the, those countries north of Ukraine that would establish a better, you know, a, a shorter border for Russia to have to defend kind of makes sense. If you have a post-dollar era in which there are a few regional powers, it would make sense for Russia to plan that from the beginning. And the degree to which Ukraine is already Russian is, you know, it's, it's high enough that uh, perhaps we expected it from the start. Well, some, uh, I don't know. Well, what on the a cultural is. level, on a cultural level. Well, some of it is Russian. I'm sure there are uh, probably tens of millions of Ukrainians that uh, are uh, not happy about being confused with Russians. But I do well, know sure. that. That there are, uh, you know, on the, uh, was it the uh, eastern uh, regions of, of Ukraine. Uh, but again, if you want to take over territories, very, very difficult to sustain that if they don't want to be part of it. And I don't know how they plan to resolve that. And I, and it, it, this very quickly, this gets into the, you know, the, the limits of my own uh, uh, research. Um, I, I've read some of your blogs. I just can't even believe half the things that you've gotten into, Matt. Uh, but yeah, there are, uh, uh, bigger things at play here. And I feel that way watching you, yeah. like we should be having a lot of conversations because you and I have like, for whatever reason, we were interested in similar topics, but read different stuff. Uh, yeah, well, one of my, one of the reasons why I think I can do some good and creative stuff is, uh, I actually don't have a deep history, uh, background. I, I really don't. Uh, as a uh, competitive analyst uh, in the IT industry, data storage industry, I was always under pressure to learn things quickly, right? To reverse engineer these, you know, these, these $5 million storage systems, uh, usually with very little data in front of me. And I would have to do it with some conversations, maybe a couple of spec sheets, uh, reviews at a trade show, et cetera. Um, so I don't really come into this with uh, having studied the Kennedy assassination, you know, for, for 15 years. So in some ways, that means I have weaknesses because there's a whole lot of stuff, uh, assumed knowledge that I don't have. On the other hand, I, I, I tend not to get caught up in a lot of the same books and stories and research that other people have seen. So there's pros and cons to it, right? I mean, you have to take it for what it is. And uh, uh, like the, this background on Russia, you know, I'm like, you can see me rolling my eyes. Like, I'm not really sure what he's talking about. <laughs> well, and, I, I'm, and I'm confident enough to say that I got no trouble saying that. And, and understand, I, I feel like I'm constantly catching up on history too. Like I, I think yeah. I, I got more interested in history about six years ago, and mm -hmm. and you know just started reading a whole lot more of it around that time. But um, but in particular because of things I was interested in, mostly on the economic side. You know, I, I economics is is you know where I am, whereas engineering is where you were. Uh, you know, thinking. In, the same way. Well, I need to read what I need to read. So I'm going to go find it. Right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. The last topic is one where I'm hopeful. 
uh, right now, I know I've read more about this than you have, but I'm hopeful that at some point you become intrigued enough to become the subject matter expert on it. Because I think there's a lot of things that you've looked into that you can build upon. Uh, and it was last week, I forget who your guest was, and I mentioned this in the chat uh, because it had some relevance to the uh, things which was being discussed at the time. Which I forget. When, when JJ was here? or might have been, I, 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 I'm sorry, I forget. It might have been the JJ one, um, Jonathan Cooey, but I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, and that is a, a working group or a commission that was created in the United States of America. Uh, and operated for several years under the in the Reagan administration. Now the group is was uh, referred to as the Commission of Integrated Long-Term Strategy. And I don't know if there's any acronyms out there which are typically or initialisms or acronyms which are used for it. And the reports that I found, uh, whose summary was provided in 2000, excuse me, 1986, uh, was called Future Security Working Environment. Now, there was uh, a lot of debate in the 1980s uh, at a very high level of what the future was of military conflict in general. The changes were seen. Computers were available. You know, intelligent computers were available. Automation was available. Uh, Long-term missiles were becoming a thing. Uh, what does this mean? The, the, the connectivity of the world was changing. Communications were changing. Telecom companies. Uh, internet was being foreseen. What is the impact of all of this going to be on global, on, on warfare, on conflict, for military contractors, for global relations? And I bumped into these uh, research papers, uh, I should say these working group papers, for a reason that is just so out there. I, I, I'll definitely tell the story. Um, <clears throat> now, the person who chaired these efforts was actually a Andrew Marshall last name M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Some know Andrew Marshall well, some never heard of him. I never heard of him until I bumped into these papers. Andrew Marshall was appointed under uh, President Nixon to run a new group, uh, strategic group within the United States Department of Defense uh, called the ONA, or Office of Net Assessment, uh, which was a very small group, uh, but had a lot of flexibility, a lot of leeway, uh, starting in the 70s, to consider a lot of these uh, the, these strategic options, the direction of military conflict in general. Uh, Marshall actually was the director of the Office of Net Assessment until about 2018 or, or so. Maybe it was 17. He was in the role for almost 50 years. He was in his 90s when he uh, resigned. Another fellow came in who I'm not familiar with. And uh, uh, this, this paper here, there were some names on it. First of all, the, uh, uh, the, the, the main names, if, uh, if I may here, why can't I zoom in? Uh, I have a copy of it over here on this machine here. I just wanna make sure I read them properly. Blah, 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 blah. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, the chairmen are Fred Ike uh, and Albert Wolstetter. Uh, Albert Wolstetter, uh, his brother, Charles, was the founder of General Telcom. Uh, and Albert Wolstetter, uh, along with his wife, Roberta Wolstetter, wrote the entire United States nuclear weapons doctrine. Okay, so kind of a big hitter. 
The members of the group are Ambassador Ann, Ann Armstrong, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, Judge William Clark, uh, Graham uh, Clayton, uh, uh, General Andrew Goodpaster, Admiral James Holloway, uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger, Dr. Joshua Lederberg, uh, Bernard Shriver, and uh, John Vesey. Uh, uh, and the members of the group include almost every single name that you will find on the project of New American Century, including Cohen, Epstein, uh, Fritz Earmath, Lawrence Gershwin, uh, James Milstein, James Roche, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas Rona, Rosen, Dennis Ross, uh, Dobbs Eckheim, and uh, Barbara uh, Bix, Bixler. So you have all of these serious heavy hitters involved in this particular effort. Now, the reason why I even discovered this freaking paper existed in the first place was there was one name on there, uh, Dr. Thomas Rona, R-O-N-A, whose book, uh, do I have it here? Oh, let's see here. Uh, one second. I need to find the book. There we go. He's looking for the book on the Rona. Our uh, Changing Geopolitical Premises. Uh, right. It really is spelled R-O-N-A. Yeah, R-O-N-A. It, it had yeah. to be. Now, he actually wrote these tables, which show uh, how you can automate uh, uh, all the different types of global conflict. Um, it, it was it was turning warfare into algorithms, basically. Matter of fact, Thomas Rona, who came to the United States from Hungary uh, in the 1950s, um, and uh, immediately was moved into a strategic role at Boeing. Thomas Rona created the word information warfare. Infowars actually receives its inspiration from the concept of information warfare. And information warfare is really about turning warfare into algorithms. It, it just occurred to me, I have come across his name before because I've actually, there are, um, and I can't remember what they're called, but there are specific feedback loops mm. that are referenced in, in, in warfare conversations and, and that make it, in, that make it, it, it is an automated process, right? They, they do see it this way. Now, several individuals tried making a movie in the early 1980s that was called War Games, which actually refers to this principle. War Games was kind of a way of leaking out that the whole nature of warfare was going to change, that computers were going to be able to figure it out. And what does this mean? You know, you have all of these people working for military contractors. What does this mean in terms of advancing computing? Uh, what does this mean in terms of what's the most valuable resource right now? These were all big questions which were being asked going into the Reagan administration. Now, Thomas Rona was married to a woman also from, uh, actually, she was French. Uh, her name was Monique Rona, R-O-N-A. And Monique Rona was a very interesting woman. She was one of the first female programmers you're going to find out there. I actually found her uh, writing code for some of the old uh, Digital Equipment Corporation computers that were on research vessels uh, in the uh, Seattle area or the Northwest, which were, uh, you know, using uh, whatever technology is to uh, measure ocean depths, you know, all sorts of oceanography related uh, sciences, trying to find uh, radioactive materials in, in ocean beds and so on and so forth. And she did some of that work, um, some of that programming. Uh, but then she took a laboratory position at the University of Washington 
in and ran their uh, their computer sciences department in the 1960s. And then she left for a year to start a uh, small startup company called the uh, I think it was called the uh, boy I forget the name of the iniquitive the Computer Sciences Corporation CSC or CPC, which only was ex- uh, in business for a year or two, but it was there that she introduced one of her students, Gary Kildall, to a twelve-year-old Bill Gates. So the introduction of Bill Gates to Gary Kildall, and Gary Kildall, many credit, credit with being the real uh, engineer of, uh, of this operating system anyways, um, was facilitated by Monique Rona at this Computer Sciences Corporation, CSC. And her husband, Thomas Rona, was the brains behind this, the inventor of the term uh, information warfare, and uh, was one of the main voices on this uh, commission of long-term integrated strategy. Now, it is as interesting as it is that many of the members on here wound up being uh, having an association with September 11th, including many of the board members are of the uh, Project of New American Century, including the director of the Office of Net Assessment, Andrew Marshall, who was who was actually accused by Steve Pachenik, nonetheless, of being the person most responsible for signing off on what we saw on September 11th. I found that one of the members was someone who I've studied and done many, many shows on, and that is a Dr. Joshua Lederberg, who was a bacteriologist and geneticist, a 12-year director of the Rockefeller Institute, uh, and a very close uh, associate of, uh, of uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, uh, Lederberg is also, by the way, the person that uh, Rumsfeld hired uh, to run uh, several secret investigations after September 11, 2001, to figure out what happened. Now, uh, the reason why Lederberg is there, and I think several other people there, is they know that the nature of warfare in the future is going to change. You know, no more, you know, having tanks, you know, you know march around, uh, no more of this, the, the trench warfare stuff. I'm not saying it doesn't happen or it's not, elements aren't happening in Ukraine right now. But generally speaking, the way warfare has been approached in the past is is going to change. It's going to be impacted by technology. So the title of this is Future Security Environment. So what really is the biggest threat in the future? And I believe what they determine is the future security is going to be who is on top of the game of computing, genetics, and biological research. Now, it's not true that everyone there was on the same page with respect to that, but you could see this uh, potential fracturing of security concerns starting all the way under uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, And uh, it actually played out in some way in the last show I've talked about, you can see elements on this on September 11th, 2001. And I still think you can see elements of it today. There are different uh, approaches or different beliefs of the way to be able to provide security or to uh, to establish oneself or one's group in a foothold or, or stranglehold or stronghold of uh, of global security. Some people, I think, are really want to approach it really just from the biological aspects. Some have more of an integrated uh, perspective, etc. And this is uh, is represented right now in some of the conflicts between U.S. agencies and also plays out in various alliances or, or uh, 
or, uh, or, or fights, if you will, between some U.S. agencies and foreign governments and non-government uh, uh, agencies as well. I think that this, while this is, may not be the most, uh, uh, most important document out there, it's one of the most th important things that I've ever read. And I sort of use it as a, uh, as a lens uh, to view how, how, what's going on behind the scenes right now. Uh, there's no doubt the United States Department of Defense has funded a lot of vaccine and biological weapons research. That's absolutely indisputable. But they're not the only one who has been funding such things. Several government agencies have. Uh, and, uh, and you can see them fighting about it all the time. Who really should be the, uh, on top with respect to different perspectives? So, uh, and with, when you would look at Operation Warp Speed, where the U.S. Army was given control over this particular program, you could see how other agencies within the United States government, in particular BARDA, uh, HHS, have uh, responded very unfavorably uh, to those decisions. And, and even all the way up to what we started about at, at the beginning, Project Veritas and uh, this uh, uh, proclaimed uh, executive at Pfizer, Jordan Walker, pointing the finger at Pfizer, and of course, the Pfizer getting their money from the United States Department of Defense. Everything has an element to it of warfare that's going on behind the scenes uh, between different parties. Um, and I'm not saying that, I don't really know if there's a good or a bad. Uh, I tend to go with the underdog uh, because I think that, that maintaining a uh, dispute probably serves us more uh, than, uh, than, than, than one side having more power than the other. Nonetheless, it explains why I think I've, uh, I've sort of come out as a, 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 a rare voice these days where I'm not, I'm not quick to say that the U.S. the United States Department of Defense is to blame for all of it. Uh, they are caught up in this war between multiple groups, multiple approaches, multiple philosophies, uh, and then maybe they have the wrong way, but I don't think it's the only way. So I have this document captured. You can find it. There are Wikipedia pages on it. And it, it also, I think, digging in, especially with your expertise, Matt, uh, there's a lot to be learned about September 11th uh, also uh, uh, by, by digging in and looking through this, uh, uh, these historical commissions out there. Any, any questions on that or? No, I, I think, uh, I, think I, I would need to do some reading before I, I have a, a good set of questions or directions to go with all this some of these names are uh entirely new to me i have you i have heard you talk about leaderberg but um again i hadn't even really uh, absorbed all of that um <laughs> as far as things that i can speak to um it, it's interesting how many people from like the 1930s 40s and 50s came out of hungary who were uh who were oh. brilliant and it, th there's this sort of joke um they sometimes get called the aliens and yes. the, the people who joke that they must have been like, you know, uh, dropped off by aliens or interbred or something with aliens. Um, but because we're talking about all these sort of confluences of world changes. Charles Woolstetter, uh, the brother. Um, why do you think I have this GTE sign up there? This is a reference to telecom industry and how involved the telecom industry has been uh, with respect to uh, nuclear warfare and the future security 
uh, concerns of the United States. GTE scandal was a huge scandal in the 1980s uh, where uh, uh, companies like Boeing, they didn't know if they had a future at all. So they were leaking out their intellectual property all over the world using telecom companies. Telecom companies also got a lot of funding from the implementation of, of a nuclear weapon uh, launch sites. Um, and again, Charles Wolstetter's brother, Robert Wolstetter, wrote the U.S. Uh, nuclear weapon uh, doctrine along with uh, his wife, Roberta Wolstetter. So the GTE sign isn't up there just because it's a cool thing from a phone booth. It's a reference to just, just tons and tons of stories of uh, really the history. And this, I really wanted to get more into the history of computing in my channel. I hope to get there uh, to, to really focus on that more so than I have been. Uh, but there is a but there is a backstory to why I think that GTE sign is so cool. It does actually tie into some of this uh, uh, security environment working group of the uh, of the 1980s. Well, you know, going back to the uh, aliens for a moment, um, they wind up being everywhere. You know, uh, yes, they, they they're in you know mathematics, physics, computer science, yep. industry, engineers, and. Mm -hmm. And there's been this question, like, you know, why Hungary? Why during that one period of time? Because it seemed to be really about a 30-year span, right? It's not yeah. like, you know, all the world's greatest geniuses were coming out of Hungary before that point and since that point. True. So, you know, what happened exactly? And I was thinking about this just the other day because I was thinking, you know, what will happen with the U.S. if the U.S. becomes more and more authoritarian or if it breaks down into sort of like oligarch city-states, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. Hungary was subjected to Sovietism. It was this new pressure that was pushed in. I don't know how that affects people, but maybe um, some portion of your society that would otherwise be, you know, just building a business, just doing something, right? That, that some of the great geniuses then take their activity into uh, a moral sphere because if they get involved in government or if they get involved in, in business, they, you know, they recognize paths mm -hmm. that would compromise their morality. So instead they go into these academic fields and they wind up just becoming explosively creative and important and making these, you know, groundbreaking, you know, these breakthroughs. Um, there are all these names that, that could be named, but there's one that I really like that is sort of actually the post-alien generation. I, I think, I, I guess you would call them post-alien generation, that I, I try to encourage people to, to read and think about. His name's Laszlo Moreau. And he's not going to tell you that he's one of the great geniuses. He wrote a book called Moral Calculations hmm. that I believe for people who don't know how important game theory is maybe the most important book on the topic to read. It's very readable. It's very digestible. Can you repeat that name, please? Moreau. Yeah. Laszlo Moreau. It just M-E-R-O. Wow. Okay. And uh, I've given away his book, Moral Calculations, more times than I've given away any other book in my life, except maybe my number theory book. <laughs> um, is there an audio book of that available or... I don't think we have to commit ourselves. So I don't think so. Hmm. There could be. 
uh, I, I, I love audiobooks. Just, you know, you can do some carpentry projects and you can just have a little bit of it at a time sink in. Yeah, I use them too. I, I use them on long car trips or while I'm doing a uh, simple work, uh, simple intellectually. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, it, it is a fast read though. It, it, like it, it, or it's something where you could read it in an afternoon or you could take it in a chapter at a time in little bites and give yourself time to think them through. But it, and it may be a book that you want to read multiple times if you do. But um, yeah, there, there's something about what happened in Hungary. And I think that, it, that, you know, it behooves people to think about what happened that produced those great geniuses. Uh, that's a great question. I've noticed it as well. There was just uh, the, the stretch of time where uh, many, uh, well, w accomplished anyways. I, mean, I don't know if they had actual, like, uh, more genius ability than other people, but there's no doubt uh, that they were extremely influential uh, in advancing the sciences, computing, internet, uh, etc. And it might have been the stress. Of, uh, it was not really a happy place to live, as far as I know, in the fifties and sixties. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I could see them uh, feeling compelled to move out. In fact, I think Rona moved out before. It was might have even been during World War II uh, that uh, he moved out. He in World War II, he was in France. Thomas Rona was, and that's where he met his wife. Um, so uh, World War II was also not really a happy place uh, then. Um, and so, you know, these these three stories that I went over, I'm not a history, you know, I'm bad at selling myself. I'm not really a history expert, but I know how to dig in. I know I have a good scent for where there's areas which haven't been dug into before that can help us get some more context of, uh, of, the, of the current day. Bypass then, the fluff. Find the find the buttons that you need. Find the buttons. As, and what I do is I, 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 I scrape up the data. I archive it, I organize it, I make it available for other people. If I sometimes I, I usually archive it before I tell people about it because I don't even want it to disappear beforehand. And um, there's been a lot of good insights which have been enabled uh, by looking at these things, by keeping the 1918 flu narrative, uh, uh, um, you know, by, by having a more accurate interpret, you know, understanding of what that was and what that wasn't. It doesn't mean that. A global pandemic is impossible, um, but the way that that event is being referred to is uh, it's 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 inaccurate based upon all the evidence that I've seen. Well, Mark, anything else before we uh, wrap things up? Um, let's see here. I wish I had a few more notes set aside. No, I I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss that stuff. I don't know if the audience had any questions. Um, you can contact me on live at houstonicits.com, which is one of the worst email addresses in the world, but at least it's consistent. Or on Twitter, just houstonic.live. It's named after a river that many generations live near in the state of Connecticut. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and to maybe reach a few more people. And uh, maybe next time you can come on my show, talk about some of the, because you, you just come out with so much content, Matt. I can't keep up with it. You know, I, I, I find it on demand. Like when I need it, okay, now it's time to look for it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd never get anything done. So maybe you can come on my show next. Yeah, uh, let me know anytime. Happy to. would love that. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, everybody. Who's uh, We still have uh, almost 100 people uh, watching, looks like. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we'll play some closing music to entertain you. Mm -hmm.